I want to start off by reading the passage together. Uh, we'll make a little comment on the way. Um, and then, then after we get through the text a little bit and make some comment along the way, uh, I want us, want us to just sort of look at this passage of Scripture uh, with something that continues to strike me about this. Uh, that is that Jesus in this passage isn't just, isn't just in the middle of this parade and throngs around him along uh, the, the roadway. That, of course, was happening. But you, know, but you know, the one who was seeing the most was the one who was in the middle there. And so I want us to experience some of this by looking outward from the middle of this parade, sort of seeing things from Jesus' vantage point as to what was going on there. Um, so let's go ahead and get to the passage and, uh, and learn a little bit here. Luke 19, 28 through uh, 44. Let's just go a little bit at a time here. Verse 28 says this, And when he had said these things, uh, these things at least refers to the preceding parable uh, that's in chapter 19 here, verses 11 and following. At least he is referring to, Luke is referring to the preceding parable here uh, that says that Jesus is king. That was one of the main points of that parable there. Jesus, of course, calls ten of his uh, disciples uh, ten is curious because he could have said all twelve, but he chose ten of them as a way to sort of say this is for all disciples, not just the twelve. He calls these ten disciples and he gives them a mina. A mina is about three, uh, three months wages. Uh, Jesus is telling the parable as if a nobleman who was going out to, to get his kingdom and to claim his kingdom was going to come back. And in the meantime, he gave them uh, something to take care of. So at least Luke is referring to when Jesus had said that parable. So in verse 28 it says, And when he had said these things, it at least refers to the preceding parable. Then it says, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So he at least refers to the preceding parable, but probably also is referring to at least way back in Luke 9.51, where he says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's the point in the book of Luke at which Jesus begins to go toward the cross. All the way back at the end of chapter 9 for Luke. And it says from time after time, from verse 51 in chapter 9, it continues to talk about how Jesus was setting his face, how he was going up to Jerusalem. He went on from there and he continued his mission and his ministry starting there from 951 toward the cross. And so Luke is probably referring here in verse 28 at least to the preceding parable and probably to the whole scope of the book of Luke so as to say (laughs) this is the beginning of Jesus going into the city. This is the beginning of Jesus going into Jerusalem. It marks the beginning of his ministry in Jerusalem over the last week, which is why we're here celebrating Palm Sunday on this day. Verse 29 says this, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, those were both east of Jerusalem, when he drew near to those cities at the mount that is called Olivet, those cities were on the mountain, on the side of the mountain, he says he sent two of the disciples saying, verse 30, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt. A colt is just a young donkey. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. It says on which no one has ever sat implies this kind of purity that's involved here. You know, when you, when you gave a sacrifice in the Old Testament, you were to bring uh, pure animals, blameless animals, if you were able to, for that sacrifice. And here, it connotes the same kind of thing, that this is a cult that's never been used. 
And so it's special. It's set apart for just this kind of moment. It says this, verse 30, Untie it and bring it here. This is Jesus talking to His two disciples that He sent on this little uh, errand here. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. It may be that Jesus had this uh, knowledge, this foreknowledge of what was going on. It may also be, um, as Luke is one to sort of point out these details along the way, it may also be that Jesus had prearranged something with these owners of the cult. And so, you know, the, the, the password might have been this next phrase here, where they said, verse 34, the Lord has need of it. That was the password there. In verse 31 is where Jesus says that to them. If the owners, if anyone, the owners is who he's talking about, verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, those two, they went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, apparently they didn't necessarily like ask, they just started to take it. Uh, the owners said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And that was it. So they brought it to Jesus, verse 35, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, perhaps to preserve sort of the purity of it, uh, to preserve the purity of the, uh, the colt there, their clothes were sort of used as saddles. They threw their cloaks on the colt and they set Jesus on it. Any good Jew who knew the Scriptures at all would clearly understand that this is a prophecy that's being fulfilled from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9 9 is being fulfilled when Jesus sets on this colt. In fact, they set him on it is a special way of Luke saying they were putting him on this colt as a significant uh, sort of symbol. Zechariah 9 9 says this Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And then it says this humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So anyone who knew how the Messiah would come would have been tipped off by what the disciples were doing here in verse 35. Let's keep reading here. Verse 36 says, As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. They continued that sort of symbol of homage to him there. Verse 37, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. In other words, as he was drawing near, what is going on here, what takes place now in the scene, is within sight of the city of Jerusalem. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God. This is probably at least the 70, if not more, of the disciples who were with him. Probably not just the 12. That's why it says the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice. If you remember from Zechariah 9.9, it starts with that word rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And so when the disciples begin to rejoice, Luke is pointing out to us here that they're continuing to fulfill the prophecy. It says the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Luke only lists uh, four miracles in 951 and following, what we call the travel narratives there. He lists only four miracles, but he's here kind of saying it as if there was a lot more I could have told you that I didn't. 
That's why they were rejoicing with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a quote from Psalm 118, Psalm 118.26, which actually says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All the other Gospels have that same phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here in Luke, he said, blessed is the king to sort of replace the he in Psalm 118. To make the point that Zechariah 9.9 and Psalm 118 are being fulfilled here in the person of Jesus. So blessed is the king instead of he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, because they know what's going on, they know the score, they know what this means. They said, teacher, speaking to Jesus, teacher, rabbi, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees understood what was going on and uh, they were worried about what it would mean for them. So he answered, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus' response to them, his answer is, you, you can't stop the creation from doing what it was created to do in worshiping the king. Then it says this, verses 41 to 44. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I'm sure many of you have been to a parade. How many of you have been in a parade, on the inside looking out? How many of you you all have experienced that? Cool. It's a different vantage point. It's a different way of experiencing what's going on. I've had a few opportunities to be in the parade, and uh, I found myself looking at the people on the outside, sort of wondering what they were thinking, kind of wondering what they were experiencing at the time. And that's what I want us to do today. Experience this scene, this parade, from the vantage point of Jesus looking out at the people. So with this background in mind, let's continue to set the scene here. This account began early on a Sunday morning. As Jesus was, as we've said before here, walking toward Jerusalem. And what happened is he stopped for a moment and and sent two of his disciples ahead of him into the nearby village, it was probably Bethphage, uh, to carry out this special errand of getting the colt on whom no one had sat. And these two disciples were probably wondering why Jesus told them to go get a donkey. You see, even if they'd known Zechariah 9.9 and they knew that the Messiah would come into the city riding on a donkey, Jesus didn't make a practice of riding on an animal when he was going into cities. He walked most of the time. In fact, none of the Gospels mentions him riding any animal to get from one place to the other. We know that Jesus and his disciples had walked easily hundreds and hundreds of miles in his ministry. And we know, in fact, from John that he and his disciples had already been to Jerusalem repeatedly during Jesus' public ministry. But no scripture ever mentions him riding on an animal. But this time, this time, 
he gives that unusual command to go into the village to get a cult that had never been written and to bring it to him. And if questioned, they were to say the Lord's need, the Lord needs it. I think Luke is making clear here that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he went into the city. This wasn't just some sort of you know, circumstantial thing. This wasn't happenstance. This wasn't like all of a sudden a parade started happening. Luke is making clear here that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he was aware, Jesus was aware of the great trial and the difficulty that he would face in Jerusalem. And rather than walk into Jerusalem as he had done many times before, he rode on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy. And everybody there knew that unless you're a king that's prancing into the city on a conquering stallion or a peaceful colt after war, you don't just ride into the city on a colt, on a donkey. You walk. Everybody walks into the city. So Jesus knew what he was doing, and he was well aware of the statement he was making. It was a crystal clear public declaration that he is the king. If you want to make this point well, read through some of the context here of what Luke has put together, especially the preceding parable. So he was saying, I'm the king, I'm coming to my kingdom, this is my city, you are my people And a lot of the people knew what he was saying. But there were a variety of responses to this king coming to the holy city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. I wonder if some of those responses were something like some of us may think, you know, like like laughter, like uh, they greeted him with sort of this sarcastic laughter, like amused by what he was doing. Because it's a bit of a ridiculous picture if you think about it. Here's this carpenter declaring himself a king. Some of them knew his lineage, they knew where he was from, perhaps thinking him a lunatic, uh, imagining himself to be king and putting him on a donkey. We know that others, namely the Pharisees, they greeted him with, uh, with anger, upset because they interpreted him riding into the city as arrogance and blasphemy against God. Who does he think that he is declaring himself to be king? Of course, there were many there who hailed him with a certain sense of a, like, a, like a personal glee because they were welcoming him as an earthly king who had come to reestablish the throne of David and to overthrow the Roman, Roman Empire, at least they had hoped. These people were ready and eager to place a crown upon his head and to take up arms and to join the revolution against the Romans. So imagine the kind of scene that Jesus saw as he walked into this city. Some in that crowd had certainly been among the thousands he had fed. Many must have seen some of his miracles and listened as he spoke with authority. And in listening, their lives had been changed. Among that crowd, there certainly had to be people that he had healed with a touch that confirmed their faith in him. Jesus, watching the people, knew all of this, knew some of their names, knew some of the experiences of ministry he had had with them, and he knew at the same time what was just over the horizon was a cross looming at the end of this journey. So as Jesus, as Jesus rides down toward the gate of the city, the crowds are growing. 
and there was this sort of festive air because it was Passover. And, and the pilgrims from afar are gathering into the city for this greatest of Jewish holidays. And even before Jesus had arrived at Jerusalem that particular day, the news had been spreading that he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can imagine the conversations that surrounded that sort of anticipation of the king coming to the city. Have you heard the news? <laughs> Lazarus died was buried in a tomb long enough that his body started to decay. But this rabbi, Jesus, he called out, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. I mean, I saw him. They stripped away the garments, and he's probably here in the city with Jesus now, with the Messiah, because only a Messiah could do that. So this anticipation was welling as the news had traveled from one person to another to another until finally Jesus was ready to enter the city with great crowds gathered on the sides of the road. They were spreading their cloaks along the road, waving the palm branches in the air. And Jesus looks over this whole scene, seeing the faces of people He loved. And there were those who loved him. Perhaps Bartimaeus was there, the man who had received his sight, no longer in his beggar's rags. I'm sure Zacchaeus was there, the man who had paid back his debts and made peace with God. Maybe some of the lepers, their skin now cleansed and rejoicing for the healing that the Lord had given them. There were also sinister faces in the crowd. Faces with skeptical and squinty eyes. Just, just waiting for him to say one wrong word. To make one mistake. We know that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were their keepers of the law. The spiritual leaders. And Jesus' popularity there was beginning to threaten them. So they watched him closely with, with jealous eyes. The, the Romans certainly had to be there, fearing revolt and watching for any sign of rebellion against Rome. They were always ready at Passover. So even then, with all this scene going on, with all these various people with their experiences of the crowd, he looks out over them and realizes then as he hears Hosanna's, he knew that those sinister voices would drown out the voices of love. That those crying for him to be king would soon be crying, crucify him. The Hosannas would become crucify him. The, the palms of that day would become a cross. He knew that even then. So there is Jesus in this scene, descending the road of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city gates, seeing the temple from that vantage point, the crowds thronging around him. And he realizes even then that the full weight of sin that he is about to bear on behalf of all creation is something none of them could fathom. That the suffering, the whipping, and the beating, and the mocking was about to happen. He was taking it all in, knowing that that was the inevitable end of the road, when suddenly he stops the whole procession. Sort of like cars in the traffic jam. You can hear the people way back 
They're saying, what's the holdup? You know, what's, what's going on? But the people who were around Jesus, who were closest to Jesus, people like Luke, they could see that at that moment when he turned the corner to see the city, he begins to weep. Looking at Jerusalem with that mixture of faces and the mass of humanity, at at that moment, the Scriptures tell us, knowing what's coming down the road, the Scriptures tell us that the perfect and all-powerful God of the universe, as He approached the cross like a blameless lamb, He wasn't focused on how terrifying or thoroughly wrong this week would turn out to be. He wasn't concentrating on the injustice that he would endure. The Scriptures tell us that at that moment, what Jesus felt was compassion. He felt compassion for these people. Many still had not heard the message, though they'd heard the words. Many still didn't understand what was going on and who he really was. And as all of that flood of emotions and those people in the crowd happen, and he turns the corner and he sees the city, his emotion, the God of the universe, who deserved none of what was going to happen, he felt compassion. He said, would that you, even you, speaking to those in the city, would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Many of them in that crowd had eyes but didn't see. They had ears but didn't hear. Many in that crowd missed the message God had sent. Many expected Jesus to be an army general, a political revolutionary who would overthrow. They were ready to pick up their swords and shields and go to war. But here comes Jesus against all expectations, riding on a lonely donkey into the city, weeping for their salvation. Saying, I've come, I've come so that you can know peace. So I beg you this week, this this Easter week, as we start this journey to the cross this week, don't miss out. Don't miss out on falling in love all over again with the Jesus who sits gentle on a donkey and weeps for you to know Him. Don't just let the week happen. And you've not had time with Jesus in the Scriptures to walk that walk with Him. Don't miss out on falling in love with Him all over again. So that when, when times are tough, when money is tight, when relationships can be a constant struggle, when responsibilities press in from every side, when you can't keep yourself from one last fix, always remember the Jesus who looks at you in that parade and weeps for you to know Him. Would that we be people who carry that weight 
and that burden and who weep for those who don't know him. Consider the pressures of that week. Consider the weight of carrying all of the sin for all people for all time in one moment on the cross compared to the crushing demands and weights that we call our own. Would that, would that we, in our infinitely less burdensome demands, say something remotely like, I weep for those who don't know 